Today, the rest, hopefully, of the discussion about representation and incarnation. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. We discussed the topic last time, and to reiterate, I'm not actually arguing contextualization in a mission setting uh, where this debate about representational and incarnational contextualization actually takes place. I'm sort of hijacking that way of bifurcating our understanding of our Christian witness, our Christian testimony, how we live out our Christianity I'm sort of hijacking that bifurcation and using it as a a way to talk about how we understand ourselves in our own culture about how we're living that out, about how we're practicing the calling that we have as believers in this world. And so we, we talked about just understanding what representation is, sort of acting as messengers, ultimately. We're just carrying the message. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether we look like the people who are receiving the message or not. We just carry the message to them. And then on the other side, the the incarnational side of it, where we actually become part of the community in which we're serving and representing Christ. And we do more than represent him. We actually become Christ in that community. And there is very strong language like that in the New Testament. That's why I brought it up. And so, you know, and so we, we talked about some of the, what I think are trivial, I, and I don't mean that in the insulting way of trivial, but we talked about some sort of trivial understandings of that division uh, about in talking about Christianity, because, you know, sort of the trivial way of saying that is that in representation, you're just saying the words matter, and in incarnation, you're saying, no, you, you know, what you do matters as well. So I, obviously, Everybody knows you have to do more than just say the words. Uh, You have to have a life that matches the Christianity that you've espoused in language. So, I mean, that's that's fairly obvious. And so that's why I say we, we covered sort of a trivial understanding of the difference between the two. But what I what I want to do now is take the step forward into a what I think is an interesting understanding of how we become Christ in our community in the more meaningful sense, both in how it's presented in the New Testament, but also of how we can make sense of these really strong claims, as Christ was, so are we in the world. Uh, Those kinds of statements are, well, like I said, strong. I mean, they, they carry more weight than simply saying, you know, Jesus saved me, so I want to tell you a message about how he did that, and then you do the same thing. There's something stronger about saying we're to imitate Christ, that we somehow experience the suffering and sacrifice of Christ, and somehow that's particularly important 
to how he fulfills what he wants to do in us in the world. And so what I want to bring up is, uh, you know, at the start of the discussion today, the inherent limitation of the incarnational approach, which is fairly obvious and I think just goes back to what we were talking about before, but also make an invitation, and that's the point for the discussion today, to invite us to be more incarnational in our fulfillment of Christ's presence in the world, but to do it uh, understanding something about what it means for us to be the community of Christ, because that, I think, is the context within which incarnation, Christ actually being present in the world in us, makes the most sense and is the most clearly defined in the New Testament as well. And so the inherent limitation then becomes fairly obvious to the incarnational approach, which is that individuals are simply not sufficient to be the incarnation of Jesus. It doesn't make sense for us to think that the pressure is on for me personally to be the one people look at and say, that's Jesus. Now, that's Jesus. Now, again, that doesn't at all take the responsibility off of me or the the onus off of me to carry the mantle of living exactly like Jesus. So when I fail, it is still a failure. It's not like I say, oh, well, it's okay that I'm not really living a holy life because it's not like I'm supposed to be Jesus in the world. No, we are individually. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't be, but I am saying we're not sufficient to do that well enough to represent Christ himself in a way that's true to what he was able to demonstrate when he was in the world, which is what the incarnation is about, Jesus being in the world. Now, I get the frustration of saying something like that. I myself uh, have encountered, you know, in my past, uh, people who were saying, well, I don't, I don't think I can actually do that well enough, and I just thought they were making an excuse for themselves. And I look back on that and really wish I had understood some of the things I'm talking about today. But if you say, well, you know, why can't a person be sufficient? I mean, can't we be sanctified enough to measure up to that standard? Again, it's not that we don't have an obligation to continue to work toward achieving that standard. But if you think about it in, 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 in Paul's language, in Galatians 6, for instance, makes the point perfectly, brothers, we're talking to the church, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So here we are. We've got somebody who's embodying Christ, right? Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, because if anyone thinks he is something he, when he is nothing, that's what he's saying is the reality. In reality, he's nothing. He deceives himself. None of us can ever get to a point where we have the confidence to say, I can approach this with perfect confidence that Christ will be represented ideally in my presence in this situation. Because in that temptation, we, unlike Christ, can fail. And that's the point of that passage in Galatians 6. Now, at the same time, he goes on, and, and, he, and this makes it even more emphatic, he goes on in verse 14 to say, but far be it from me, now this is for the reasons we talked about in Incarnation during the last episode, but I'll, I'll sort of clarify as briefly as I can. 
He goes on in verse 14 in that same passage in Galatians 6 to say, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. So clearly, as Paul's describing it, he doesn't see the sacrifice, the offering being made by the person, even Paul himself, who is an apostle, who imitates Christ in so many ways. He even says, hey, it's not my suffering that's bringing about the redemption of people. The only thing I boast in is the cross of Christ. And I'm not crucified to the world by the fact that they have beaten me or, 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 or given me stripes or have imprisoned me or I've starved or I've been thrown overboard or any of that. I mean, it wasn't thrown overboard, you know, tossed about in the ship, whatever. But the point is, he doesn't say, and so I boast in those things, or the world was crucified to me in my own suffering. No, he says, I was crucified to the world in the cross of Christ. That's where my boasting is. So our actual atonement and our actual testimony is toward the cross of Christ, toward the resurrection of Christ. It's not even as we would think of it in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All of that is brought forward for Paul to say, I'm not pretending that I can somehow replace the presence of Christ in the world in myself. However, on the invitational side of that, the church the community of Christ, the corporate, the body of Christ. It's called that, corporeal, the corporate body of Christ. The church is sufficient to demonstrate the presence and holiness and righteousness and mercy and kindness and so on of Jesus in the world. That's what we are, that's exactly, precisely what we are called to do. So that in Ephesians 3, at the end of Ephesians 3, you know, the Ephesians is divided in half, the first half sort of this theologically abstract kind of uh, description of what's true about us in the heavens eternally and so on. At the close of that, you know, he has that prayer where he says, I want you to experience the fullness of what it is to be in Christ in this way. And he says, I'm telling you all of this and I'm praying for you so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, but it's explicitly plural in, in the fact that the personal pronoun that's used there is about the individuals. So it's your hearts, but it's plural because it's more than one heart. So I'm speaking to all of you so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So you have to have faith personally. You believe in Christ and I'm praying Christ will dwell in each of your hearts personally, but then he shifts it and says, so that you, and this time it's a plural you, so that you as the body of Christ, as the church at Ephesus, being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you, plural, all of you, not individuals, so that you 
may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's why when he goes on to the next chapter, which is only a a verse later, a few verses later, when he goes on to the next chapter, it's so, the the opening section, you know, that we should walk uh, in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, that statement. So I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. All of that passage is about how they dwell in unity and the bond of peace and how they're tied together. I'll read it to you. So that you walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were all called to the one hope. And then when you skip down to verse 11 in the same passage, he's doing the same thing after he's described how Christ came into the world, describes literally the incarnation. First, Christ descended. That had to happen first before he could ascend on high. All of that is to get to the point in verse 11 of saying, and he gave the apostles and prophets and the evangelists all these gifts to the church in the persons that he puts in the church, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Not each individual's body, but the body of Christ, the church, until we all attain to, and how does he even describe attaining to this thing? It is the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's not a statement about individuals. Again, it's not a pass for an individual to say, well, you know, I think it's okay that I sin because it's balanced out by this other person who sends something different and mine's negative and theirs is positive and so it adds up to zero. We're just like Jesus. I'm not saying that. I am making the point. Of course, individuals are being worked on by the Holy Spirit so that we're more sanctified, but our sanctification is never going to mature beyond the reality that we're limited as individuals and that in our full maturity, we can become a part, just a part of the body that can adequately demonstrate what it was for Christ to be incarnate in the world. I can't be the body of Christ. I can be a toe in the body of Christ and that's about it, and that probably is the right part there. So the so my point, so you get the point. You get the overall point. So let me, let me give an, an example or an illustration of the kind of thing that I'm talking about. So the example would be intercession, uh, how we pray for others. And again, obviously it's fine that we, all of us individually, can act as intercessors, that we can pray for other people, that we can, and there's more to intercession than just that. I mean, praying for someone else is intercessory by definition. I mean, you're getting in the middle and and requesting on their behalf, but genuine intercession, you know, is a lot more than that. And if you uh, see examples of it in scripture or you read about people who really grasp what it is to pray in an intercessory fashion, then you learn what it was for Christ when he prayed in an intercessory fashion for us. He never just prayed and said, oh, I I hear Aunt Sue is sick somehow, and so, you know, God, please make her better, and also bless our meal, amen. That's and Which is still meaningful prayer. I'm not saying not to do that, and I know I'm making light of it, but at the same time, I'm not saying not to do that. But intercessory prayer doesn't do that. When you intercede on someone else's behalf, 
You inject yourself into the situation. You take on the cause. So when you're praying in an intercessory fashion in biblical terms, you're doing what Christ did. He took on the burdens of the people who were around him, and he carried their burdens. So the intercessor, and this was the role of the priest in the Old Testament, he carried the sins of the people of Israel. This is in the Old Testament. He carried them. And you can say it was just an image or an example, but that image is important, and that's the one we're supposed to have. And as individuals, it's not really possible for us to intercede successfully without crippling ourselves every day. Uh, The number of burdens that people carry is just more than we could bear. It's not more than we should try to bear. I'm not saying it's more than we can give ourselves to some of it, but, you know, it wouldn't be possible for us to do that as a whole. And in James, you have a little reference to this kind of intercessory prayer uh, in James 5 and how it takes place. And in James 5, the intercession that has to happen, the calling for someone else to pray for us to be healed and to be restored is in the context of the body of Christ. And we're calling for those who represent the body of Christ, the elders, to be the ones who are praying for this person. This is what's going on in James 5. Is anyone among you sick? Again, I think of this in the context of church discipline. I may not be right. I can't prove that it's that, but the language is so parallel and so strongly similar. And the relation, you know, in terms of how this passage relates to the Gospels, it certainly goes back to the to the people who broke up the, the roof of the house where Jesus was speaking, and they lowered their friend down before Jesus, and he, seeing their faith, healed that man, you know, and all of that. It's There's no doubt the passage in James 5 alludes, or maybe just echoes, but I think it alludes directly to that Gospel episode. But I think also this is how we understand the practice of what Paul is talking about in terms of church discipline in the in the discussion of the Lord's Supper, you know, in 1 Corinthians 11, and how some people are taking it wrong, and because of that, they're sick, and some are even dead. In that context, the point is that the Lord's Supper serves as the indication of our ongoing fellowship in the body of Christ, and these people are not participating in the body of Christ because they haven't chosen the path that Christ had chosen for them, and now they want to be restored. So what do they do? They call for the elders of the church. I think it's in that context. But whether it is or not doesn't change this, that when when James says at the end of the book, talking about how important this whole book has been a book about saying, don't condemn everybody else. You're the one that needs to change. That's what it's been saying the whole time. And what needs to change is your commitment to holiness, where you understand that God's not trying to make you a teacher for everybody else. He's trying to make you a person that embodies the peace of Christ that comes from above. That's at the end of James 3, for instance, or at the beginning of James 1, be slower to speak and swifter to hear, you know, all of that. And where he describes pure religion and undefiled. So all of that out of the way. By the time we get to, you can tell how much I love the book of James. By the time you get to the end of the book of James in in chapter 5, the statement is, is anyone among you sick? Then let him call for the elders of the church. This is... It's not just, eh, get your Aunt Sue to pray for you, which is a good thing to do. Aunt Sue can certainly pray. 
I don't want that to stop. I'm not asking that to stop, but I am saying in the New Testament, when you say, ah, now here's a powerful prayer, and this is the effectual prayer passage, so this is, this is what we're talking about, How, you know, where does that come from? Well, it comes from Christ. He's the intercessor. The Messiah is the intercessor. And where is that embodied in the world? The incarnation in the world is in the body of Christ. And so when it says, is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them. That doesn't make the elders of the church somehow apostles or the only ones with authority to pray. They're simply representing the congregation as a whole in this context. That's how I understand it. So it says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another, not just one to the elder. It's not setting up a priestly class. It is one to another. So confess your sins one to another. This, the prescription of the passage is not simply that when someone is sick, they call for the elders of the church to come and pray for them in an intercessory fashion. The, the, the prescription of the passage is before you're sick, live a life where you're confessing to each other, where as the body of Christ, you're experiencing what it means for his presence to be real in the world. And so not because an individual is holy, but because an individual experiences confession and forgiveness and renewal in the context of the body. Therefore, we're demonstrating the presence of Christ in the world. Therefore, it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Uh, and this is that, you know, this great power that was demonstrated in Elijah has great power and is working and goes on to say it about Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us. He's a man with passions just like ours. And he prayed fervently. And then it goes on to tell the story of what happened in Israel back in the days of Ahab and the whole event that transpires leads up to Mount Carmel, which is God renewing his covenant with his people and fulfilling his covenant with his people and so on. So he goes on to say at the end of that passage in James 5, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings, and this these statements, they're troubling to people. Like the whole time that I was growing up in my Christianity, you know, taking it on myself and sort of becoming someone who taught about it and led others regarding it, these passages were really confusing to me. And it happens with Paul, he says it, that I might by all means save some. And it happens here with James when he says it. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's incarnational language. We're doing what only Christ can do. I don't at all think it's a substitute for Christ. It doesn't replace Christ as if my sacrifice and prayers are all you need. I'll take care of your relationship with Christ. Just trust me. That's the opposite of the point here because we're confessing our sins one to another. 
as a body, we are encountering and experiencing the fullness of Christ's presence in us and are therefore able to share that with those who are members of the body and those who are surrounding us in the community around us, even those who've been uh, removed from the body because of some error in their ways or whatever. Let him know whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save that soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I have a hard time figuring out how we're supposed to read that and not see transparently that the incarnation of Christ in the world now is in the body of Christ as the community of Christ, as the body of Christ. So the church, and this is my point in the discussion on both sides, so the church can see its role in relation, and this is what incarnation means, in relation to the place it serves. So, like, one of the things churches need is to be intentional about what they do, right? So, I, when I was young in ministry, I had that attitude that when people would say, well, who are you trying to reach? You know, what's your church targeting? I would say, the world, you know, everyone, obviously. We want to reach everyone. Well, we weren't reaching everyone, <laughs> and I don't know. You know, I, I just thought, why would we target someone? You know, we we just want everyone to come here and hear the gospel and, and uh, come to be a follower of Christ, which sounds Jim Dandy until you finally realize that you actually only look like a tiny sliver of what would interest anybody in knowing anything about the gospel. And it's because you represent a particular community. You have an accent. You wear your hair a certain way. You eat certain styles of food and so on. Uh, I've been in churches lately that uh, describe themselves as an ethnicity, and yet they speak English. Their description of their ethnicity is about the foods they eat and the general habits and practices of how they have fellowship and what their home life is like and, you know, what their family style is like. And all of that kind of stuff is uniquely identified with them. And they're reaching people who would have no interest whatsoever in ever talking to me. They would never even turn my direction on the street. They might not even notice I was walking by because I'm not a part of their world. And so what I learned later, obviously, in ministry— by saying all of that, it's obvious. What I learned later in ministry is that, you know, you do have to target your ministry to understand what your incarnation in your community, what it's representing, the extent to which you can say, we can identify with you and want to show you what it means for you to know Christ. Now, that, that doesn't bind the gospel. It's not like Christ can't reach outside of that. Obviously, a stranger can introduce someone to Christ. That's fine. But when people want to see how it's lived out and want to know how to practice it, they need to see the incarnation of it in a style that reflects. I mean, if all we do is teach someone who doesn't know English how to say the Lord's Prayer in English, then all they can do is mimic our sounds. What we want are people adopting the realities of the practices of Christ. We want them adopting the truth of what the Holy Spirit accomplishes in them, which means that churches can see their roles in relation to the places they serve. So as I was saying, churches have to be intentional, which means you create some kind of a, like the, the normal way to do it is to say you create a mission statement and you can formalize that and make it bureaucratic and useless. 
Or you can be intentional about saying, no, we, we want everyone to be unified around this mission statement. I was at Tate Springs Baptist Church recently, and they end every service simply by quoting the Great Commission together. They just all say it together as a congregation. It's their way of reminding themselves what their mission is. But their mission goes beyond just saying the Great Commission. Their mission is specifically to that community in the Arlington area and how they're going to reach that community and so on. Now, I'm not saying it wouldn't go beyond that at some point or maybe going beyond it now, but the point is it's defined specifically within your context. What is this church trying to accomplish right now, and how are we going to accomplish that? So that's simply defining your role in terms of your context, and that means the place where you're serving because churches are in places because, I mean, the word church means a gathering, an assembly, you know, so you're meeting somewhere, you're doing something together. So you can think of it like Luke 9 and 10, you could, and and I think this would lead to a mistake, which I'm, which I'm going to point out, obviously, I love doing that, but, but we could do it as we're thinking of Luke 9 and 10, Luke 9 and 10 meaning Jesus gathers up his disciples, first the 12 and then the 70, and he sends them out to go preach the gospel of the kingdom. We could think of it like that so that you go to a community and you serve them, which is what they did. You show up and you do good. You heal and you cast out demons and you do all that stuff. And then you preach the kingdom to the ones who accept. And if they don't, then you shake off the dust of your feet against those who reject. You you know, you could think of it in those terms, except that by the time we get to the book of Acts, same author, Luke 9 and 10, Luke writes Acts. So by the time we get to Acts 16 in Philippi, we have a pretty direct contrast to that model because when Paul is in uh, Philippi sharing the gospel, there is no reception. There is no welcome. They end up in jail. They're absolutely rejected. But he's not sitting in his prison cell shaking off the dust of his feet against the the whole city, nor when the jail cell opens does he go outside and see the jailer kneeling on the floor begging for mercy and shake his feet against him and say, yeah, eat my dust. You rejected it. You're on your own. It's the opposite of it. In that that story, you you know what transpires. He just tells the Philippian jailer, hey, all you got to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your household will follow and the city follows, meaning a church is established there so that the incarnation of Christ becomes apparent there in a more permanent fashion. And long before that, by the way, long before you get to Acts in Luke after the story of the, you know, sending out the disciples and telling them what to do if a city rejects you, on the way to Jerusalem, this is what Jesus does, refusing to curse a village that rejects him while he's on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. He prays for Jerusalem itself, knowing that they are going to crucify him. In fact, when he's being crucified, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Luke, all of these are Luke, Luke 23, 34. The, the point is that our model is not Luke 9 and 10, you know, go to a city, and if they accept you, stay there, and if they reject you, go away, shake the dust off the feet, off your feet. Our model is you, you're going to live in a city that's going to reject you. It's going to put you in jail. It's going to seek to destroy you, but that's what they do to me. 
That's what they do to me in Jerusalem, and we're still going to go to it, and we're still going to be there. And while they're crucifying us, we're still going to say, Father, forgive them. They just don't understand what they're doing. And if you say, well, that, that you know, that's just Jesus. I mean, that's him, but he's the one. Stephen does exactly the same thing. Stephen, chosen by the church to represent them. Stephen does exactly the same thing in Acts 7.60. In fact, there's no doubt it's an homage. It's it's an acknowledgement back to what Jesus had done and falling to his knees. He cried out with a loud voice. This is when they're stoning him. Lord, do not hold this sin against them while they're stoning him. Here's the difference. Stephen doesn't rise from the dead like the, the Messiah does. I'm not saying he won't rise from the dead. He just hasn't yet, just like us. I mean, you know, the resurrection comes in the future. Not until everyone else does will he rise from the dead. Yet in the church, and this is, I think, what's going on in Acts, the way it's written, it's anybody who just reads literature would know to say, yeah, well, obviously that's what happens. That's the obvious image. There is one who rises from Stephen's death. They, you know, this is the language. Then they cast Stephen out of the city, and they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And the whole book is about to shift gears to talk about the conversion of Saul, his rising from the death that he'd been living in before. And see, this is the point of saying the incarnation happens in a community. That's why one person can die but they don't need to rise from the dead like Jesus did in order for the lordship of Christ to be demonstrated. Instead, the Lord brings other people alive from the dead and demonstrates the lordship of Jesus in their new birth, in their resurrection, into a new life in Christ. And it's a completely different kind of imagery that's starting to happen by the time we get to the book of Acts, and it's about the community. Of Christ. So then we have to settle on what it means to be incarnate among people. And I'll, I'll be brief on this and I'll, I'll flash through it best I can uh, because I, I do want to finish uh, the discussion about incarnation representation today. So, so what we have to do is settle if, if the incarnation of Christ is in the body of Christ in this world, then we have to settle on what it means to be incarnate among the people to whom we represent, represent Christ. In other words, how much contextualization is identifying the same way Christ did with the people that he came to serve and that we're sent to serve? How much contextualization is that? And then how much would be dipping below the surface of the context into, you know, some kind of self-rewarding or self-serving compromise of what had instead always in Christ set him apart. In other words, when does contextualization go overboard? So that we're not being incarnate, we're just being just like the people, you know, who need a deliverer but don't have one now because we're just like them. So, and that, and, you know, so let me give you the example to come back to Christ and talk about it. You know, Christ did take on the, you know, the flesh of everyone in his, in his culture and in the variety of cultures that were present with him. So he attended suppers with the wildest people in a village. That's why he was criticized for it. And he taught in the synagogues where the righteous were on Saturday, you know. But he didn't adopt the practices 
that harmed so many of the sinners, nor did he approve of the legalism and moralism of the synagogue leaders. He 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 lit, he was incarnate. He was in their presence, and it meant more than just well, I have flesh like you, but obviously I speak the heavenly language, not your scattered, uh, you know, Hebrew or Aramaic. It wasn't that. He was incarnate. He was in their culture. He was going to their houses and to their synagogues, but still different, you know. He lived as the thing we were created to be, the perfect man. He lived as the Christ. So he didn't avoid either's culture. And by the way, his reputation was sullied by what he did. He is the righteous self, you know, righteous leader to the people who are the sinners until he breaks through to them and they realize, oh, this this one is different. He's willing to accept us. And he was a sinner to those who saw him having supper with the sinners until he sat down with them and said, well, to whom you would you give the most thanks? You know, who's the person? Do you think the person who's forgiven most would give the most thanks, or do you think the you know, and so on? So you know the story. I'm not going to go back and fix the mess I made of it by telling it right there. So here's my point, and this is why we've had the whole the whole conversation. the 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 church is not, you know, like what Judaism had become. And I, when I say it's not, I mean it shouldn't be. It probably is in a lot of ways right now. But what the church should not be is what Judaism had become in Jesus' day. And again, I, the parallels are much stronger than you think. Uh, so let me, let me justify the parallel real briefly, because I know you would say, well, Judaism didn't have the Messiah. They knew about the Messiah. They did have a Messiah. They knew all of the statements that Jesus himself brings forward to mature Christianity into what it is. And most importantly, Judaism was given to the Jews by God. You know, his hand on Mount Sinai. It's not like they made it up and just didn't do a very good job of it. No, they were given God's religion supernaturally and still twisted it into the empty form opposite of its intended meaning. And the church can do exactly the same thing with what was handed to us on a silver platter, on a spiritual platter by Christ. We can do exactly the same thing, and we shouldn't. So the church should not become like what Judaism had become a way, and this is what Judaism had become, a way to enforce cultural norms that were handed down to us, to them, from their parents and theirs from theirs and so on, all the way down. And that is, in many contexts, what the church has become, just a way to hand down cultural norms. And I know you want to say, well, yeah, but these are cultural norms that we handed down because we were Christians. They would have said, and these are cultural norms we hand down because we're Jews. But our Judaism, our Christianity in this case, has already been so reshaped by our culture that it doesn't look like Christ. And so we don't want to be that. We don't want to be just a means of handing down uh, rituals from the culture. And it shouldn't be a, a, a means of perpetuating, in that same sense, 
sort of just the, the moral requirements, most of which are pretty hokey, but not all. I mean, some of them are very meaningful. But we don't want to just perpetuate moral requirements that make us feel a lot better about ourselves without making any of us any more like the God we're supposed to be imitating. And in fact, a lot of those moral requirements become means for us to do the opposite of what would actually represent the holiness of God in this world. They allow us to raise our nose and say, I am holier than thou. Thou hast worn clothes my parents would never have approved of. And we become Pharisees in the process. So that's not, obviously, that's not what the church is supposed to be. And if that's what it's become, you know, how can I get up on Sunday morning and show people what they shouldn't be doing? Which movies don't you want to go to? You know, let me tell you what you don't want to. Let me tell you how your vocabulary is messed up, whatever. You know, that's just not who we're supposed to be. What the church should be is what Jesus himself reveals. This is the incarnation in contrast to what Judaism had become, that is, the incarnation of God's actual holiness in the world embodied in exactly what Jesus both lives out in his own life and then expects from his followers, exactly as Yahweh had told his people in Leviticus 19 in the Old Testament to imitate his holiness by loving their neighbors as themselves by loving the strangers who were around them as those who were born among them. And we've talked about how to convert, you know, how we often convert the term love into the term condemnation, and that that's not okay. That, that we, that, that, that you can't, love is not the same thing as judgment. And you can't say, well, that's just tough love. No, condemnation is condemnation. Love is love. It's not the same thing. And if you blend them together, you make them meaningless. So we don't want to convert love into condemnation. You can't love some, you know, as people would say, you can't love someone if you don't tell them the truth. Well, that's that may be true, but just telling them the truth isn't loving them either. So love is something beyond that. So Luke's gospel makes it clear. John's gospel comes right out and says it. And again, I did a whole episode on this, so I'm not going to go back and do it again. But John 3.17 makes it crystal clear. God did not send his son into the world. That's incarnation. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I know what you want to do is say, yeah, but the verses right after that talk about the condemnation that already exists. Not the one we have to perpetuate in the world. It already exists. People already know they're condemned. Do you believe in God or not? He knows how to do his job. We're already condemned. What we need is a deliverer, and that's what Jesus instantiated for us, incarnated for us, right? So we, instead, to come back to Paul's language in Galatians 6, we, instead, are commanded not to grow weary in doing good, because in due season, we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and then especially to those who are of the household of faith. So you can see why I'm saying in the body of Christ. This is where we live out the incarnation of Christ in this world. So here's my, here's my, my point. May we personally bear the fruit of the Spirit, obviously. I, I, you know, individuals, 
need to experience and live out love and joy and peace and all of the fruit of the Spirit. May we personally live unto God and for the people he brings across our paths every day. Obviously, we want to do that. But also, may our churches begin to see themselves as Christ's body, his incarnation, living and serving and praying and giving and sometimes sacrificing or even dying in order to be faithful to the one who did actually become incarnate to purchase their redemption. But may we do all of that for the people who are surrounding the congregations where we're able to be that incarnation of Christ. May we see ourselves as Christ's body or his incarnation for the communities in which our churches have been placed. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.